Hey, I'm Danny Mazer, and welcome to the Soul Stories Podcast, an extension of Soul Stories, where we host conversations for healing and change. America is in the midst of a cultural reckoning, and in this season, I speak with leaders and creatives who provide a well-needed dose of inspiration. Our guests spend their time following their passion, uplifting others, and making a positive impact in what sometimes feels like a bleak reality. This season is about hope and the belief that change is possible. Enjoy! Hassan Latif is the founder and executive director of the Second Chance Center. The Second Chance Center is dedicated to helping the formerly incarcerated successfully transition into society with proper education, support, and resources. Hassan actually spent 18 years in prison himself before becoming the role model he is now. In this episode, he recounts his early days of choosing life on the streets in Brooklyn, New York, growing up in segregated America, and the incredible transformation he underwent to becoming the leader so many know and love. You are in for a treat. Hassan is an incredibly engaging storyteller, and I am excited for you to listen. Here's our conversation. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing pretty good, brother. I was on a Zoom call. We have uh, our Zoom mentoring groups. It was a pretty good group I, I just signed off on to, to kind of get with you, so... Oh, nice. What's the mentoring group? It's called Never Going Back. It's a cognitive restructuring effort on our part to kind of use each other's experiences and voices to help examine a very, really simple formula we have here at Second Chance Center. And that's thoughts plus feelings equals behavior. Mm. So that's, that's, that's a formula we work off. And, and, and our belief is that if we don't really take an honest look at how we think and how we got to the place where we process information and think the way we do, if we don't look at our feelings and what the source of those are and how they impact us, uh, then the likelihood of any sustained behavior change is really just a pipe dream, actually. You know, you'll find people that can monitor themselves and discipline themselves and civilize themselves long enough to get out of prison, get out of the halfway house, get off of parole, and then without addressing these core things that we think are critically important, they wind up returning to the same sorts of behavior. So uh, that's ultimately what we try to work on in that group. We do it with a peer mentoring style as well as one-on-one kind of mentoring relationships. But it's messy work sometimes, Danny. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, we're asking people to look at sometimes very dark and uncomfortable things about themselves and trusting a process, trusting that it's going to be designed and useful to help them not just get to that stuff, but get through it so that you can get past it if that's even possible. So that's that's the work that that we're still trying to do, even though we can't be face-to-face with our arms around our people. We're still trying to do some of that. Well, I really want to dig into that, and I just admire the work you do. But before we get like deep into the work you do, I'd love to hear more about your story, your background, where you came from, and how this all developed. Uh... Well, I'm 65 years old, so if I start telling my story, it's going to take volumes of uh, (laughs) recording. But let me just give you the short version, brother. I'm uh, 
I'm originally from New York, although I was uh, I was conceived there and born in South Carolina. But uh, I hit the bricks in New York at three months, so that that was my home. That was my home for for many years. Uh, it was the seed of many of the processes that we talked about a minute ago. My development of my thought processes is also was the place of many experiences, some of which were uh, violent, abusive, and that kind of thing. You know, like for instance, I started using when I was five years old. And I've been asked, well, how does a five-year-old start to use? And my answer is with the help of adults. You know, so Mm. I'm a person now who has been in recovery for, this is my 31st year. And there are still things that uh, I continue to have to work on and work through that were a result of not just my substance use over the course of many, many years, but the kind of things that actually led me to that as a source of relief or self-medication or, you know, what, whatever. Sometimes I have these conversations because I'm an addictions counselor by trade as well. And sometimes I'm having conversations with folks about the perception about drug use. And here's a thing that I like to share, Danny, and this anybody who's ever used any drug, whatever drug, it's always for the same reason. Now you could talk to a thousand different people in a in, in a hundred different substance group, uh, abuse groups, and you might have a thousand stories about what led people to pick up for the first time. But ultimately, whether it's an aspirin or a shot of heroin, people use drugs to alter how they feel. You got a headache, you take an aspirin. You know, you've been sexually molested by your father, then perhaps it's another drug that you turn to to help you bridge that emotional gap or heal in your in your own mind that damage or just to forget about it, to put it aside, to stop feeling whatever that is, at least for a little while. Mm-hmm. And this is not this is not an excuse for why people choose to do whatever they do or the things that they do as a result of it. But we have to look at some of the causes and some of the reasons if we're going to have any chance at uh, changing any of those dynamics. I agree with you. I appreciate that insight. I want to know about New York. I want to, about, I want to know about like growing up in New York, what that was like for you. It's pretty interesting because it, it goes through a number of phases. You know, uh, I, I was raised in Brooklyn to start and my first 10 years uh, in New York were in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn at that time was a little different than it is now. Much of Brooklyn has been gentrified, it mm-hmm. surprisingly so. But uh, when I was raised in Brooklyn, the block that I lived on, my family and those that lived in my building and one other building on the block were the only black people on the block and the only Puerto Rican people on the block. The neighborhood surrounding us was predominantly Italian. And New York was very segmented at that time. It still is. You know, you have all different kinds of communities. They very much closely border each other, but you still have a lot of that now to this day. But uh, it was a, a different time, and it was a pretty hostile time for, for those of us who were black 
in that community. And I remember the street, I lived on Bedford Avenue and the street right next to mine was called Skillman Street. Uh, so Skillman and Myrtle and Bedford and Myrtle, just one block apart. But on the, in the middle of that block, there was a noose hanging on a tree in Skillman Street. And it was quite clearly understood that they were willing to put that noose to use if any of us made the mistake of coming on Skillman Street. It was that kind of an environment. Was that uh, the Italian neighborhood? Yes. Damn. Yeah. And so, uh, and, it, and it's odd because one of my little buddies, one of my little friends was an Italian kid. His name was Robert DeSantio. And uh, I'll never forget his name, never forget him. We were friends. He couldn't bring me to his house. He couldn't bring me up to his apartment. He tried one day. And I heard his dad say, <laughs> get that fucking moolie out of my house. So uh, when he came out, we were walking. So I said, hey, Rob, uh, what's a moolie? He said, uh, a real good friend. And I said, nah, dude, don't <laughs> even try. I heard what your dad told me. So Mooley, Mooley at the time was a derogatory term used for black folks. It was like the N-word in, in, in Italian. Literally, it translated Moolian, which is like eggplant. Hmm. So basically, they're calling you an eggplant, but not really. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, that was the tone of that. And, and ultimately, I came to the era where schools were being desegregated and had that experience of being bused an hour and a half from my neighborhood to very hostile settings. What years are these? Well, my first year of high school was 1969, so I'm, I'm really dating myself. And prior to that, we went to neighborhood schools. And in neighborhood schools, we felt as though we were a part of that neighborhood and we were part of that school. We felt quite differently about being bused an hour and a half from places where when we came into school or when we left school, we went through what was the equivalent of gauntlets of students lined up, you know, to offer whatever kind of racist ass opinions they had about us invading their space. Mm -hmm. And that was the learning environment that, that people thought in theory was going to be better. When people talk about desegregation of schools in America, the desire was to have equal access to education. The reality of what happened is we left communities where we had African-American teachers, the predominantly women teachers, and we had them who put a lot of emphasis on us achieving a level of excellence. And instead of that, we went to neighborhoods and schools where there was a very low expectation of us and there was a resistance to assist like you would do any student in need or any student trying to learn something for the very first time. And yeah. so we actually were disadvantaged. And that's aside from, you know, having to knuckle up with fools in the stairway and in the bathrooms and stuff like that. The whole environment. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, for me, I chose the street. I chose the life in many respects uh, because I got to a place in my life where I felt like, okay, I might not be able to protect myself at home, but on these streets, you know, nobody's going to do anything to me and just like get away with it. You know, this was, this was a concept born out of 
desperation and a need to feel safe and avoid harm. And actually, it just morphed into a thing where uh, I was preemptive in many respects about violence and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, it, it was one of those things. I was in a life in New York, and it led to all the things you could imagine. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, yeah. I had the privilege of talking to you the other night on Black Community Matters, and I'm wondering if you could share the story you shared with us then about being in class, just to give an example of being in, like, the newly integrated schools. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, well... <laughs> When I said that I was a kid that was in a life, Danny, I also was a pretty kind of a strange kid as well because there were things that I liked that other people weren't interested in or I wasn't interested in them knowing that I liked those kind of things. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it had to do with reading, you know? So I go to, I go to my first day in, uh, in this particular school and it's the English class and I was late to the class, not due to any action of my own, but just kind of having to go through a process when I first got to this school. And so I get to the class and they, they happen to be reading Macbeth when I walked in, you know. So the teacher directed me to, you know, a seat in the back of the room. And uh, so I sat down, made myself, you know, as comfortable as possible. And uh, I was the only black child in the, in the room, of course. And uh, I raised my hand after, you know, one of the students had finished reading and somebody else was getting ready to start. And I told the teacher that I needed a book. I didn't have a book. And she said to me, that's okay, you wouldn't understand it anyway. And all the kids started like giggling and laughing, you know? So I had that moment of uh, humiliation, of course, but my processes were, were, were a little bit different because uh, that shifted pretty quickly to anger. And in my mind, I'm just, you know, figuring out, you know, what to do about this thing here. And uh, so I stood up in my, I stood up from my chair and I guess, Maybe people thought I was getting ready to leave, but instead of actually leaving, I said, uh, is this a dagger which I see before me, handled toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, yet I see thee still. Art thou vision sensible to feeling as to sight, or art thou but a dagger of the mind, proceeding from this heat-oppressed brain? What they didn't know is that I loved Shakespeare, okay? (laughs) And everybody's mouth was dropped open and the teacher was like, uh, 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 let me find you a book. And I said, that's okay. I don't need it. You know, for me, that was my triumph. But Mm -hmm. why should I have been forced to feel any of those things or feel the need to defend myself or defend my intellect or defend my humanity my first day in a freaking classroom, man? You shouldn't be put in that place to begin with. Yeah. I mean, I played hooky once, man, and hitchhiked to Stratford uh, uh, Von Avon, Connecticut, because they were putting on uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, dude. <laughs> I, mean, I, I knew I was going to get in two kinds of trouble, one for cutting school and one for being out of the state and one for not getting home in a decent hour. <laughs> I knew I had ass whippers coming, you know, and a whole bunch of other uh, trouble. And it was like, I, uh, this is worth it. I'm going. Yeah, so. <laughs> what attracted me about it, oddly enough, were the stories that he wrote about. Because even though that was a different period, looking around my world, it was stuff that I could relate to. It was about betrayal. It was about uh, murder. It was, <laughs> it was about, uh, I mean, come on now. We know what Shakespeare was writing about life. 
Yeah. You know, and it just took a while to crack the code of that, uh, the, the, the purest of English. It took a while for me to crack the code, but once I did and I realized that the depth of the stories that he was, he was sharing, I mean, I didn't have to look too far in the streets in Brooklyn or in my own building, in my own home to mm. see, you know, similar kinds of things. And so it drew me to that kind of literature. That's amazing. Cause truthfully going through high school, I never understood Shakespeare and I don't think I ever cracked that English code. <laughs> um. I, I had a little help, man. I stole a book once that had a commentary at the bottom that kind of broke that broke some stuff down. Yeah. That helped me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would steal books in the library. Go ahead. There's a statute of limitation on them kind of crimes. I'm good. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh man. So you're growing up in Brooklyn and you have like an affinity to reading you're being bussed into these schools and it sounds like you're trying to kind of make the environment safe for yourself by like, as you said, living the life. I'm curious, like that's kind of like an interesting juxtaposition, I guess is like this. It sounds like you're a super curious kid and you're having to defend yourself at the same time. Yeah, well, you know, let me just tell you, too, because my family had a lot to do with my own development, you know, and the kind of things that I uh, was exposed to, the kind of things that I I endured and survived in my in my own family, you know, but also the mindset that was developed. Let me let me tell you, there was a time in New York when they had standardized testing and uh, they still do, I'm sure. But at the time. I was getting ready to go into sixth grade and I remember doing these tests and uh, it turns out that I like scored off the charts in all of these tests so much so that I was accused of cheating, (laughs) you know, which one I hadn't cheated and I was offended by that. Uh, I told my mother cheat on one of those tests. Yeah. Tell me, tell me, (laughs) you know, like I could not have gotten this score. So, so let me give you a little bit about my family dynamic. So when I tell my mother that, you know, uh, I got she got to call to school, she got to come down because they say I cheated, my mother's going to believe anything that any white person tells her about me. My father, of course, he believes that I didn't cheat because I didn't lie to him generally. And uh, he was just angered by the fact that I was being accused by folks of something that I hadn't done. So what happened was they made me go to the public school's headquarters in Manhattan. My parents had to take me there. And they put me through a series of other kinds of tests. And it was the same standardized test, but like another one. And I was in this room with, you know, I knew it was like mirrored glass. It was like uh, being in one of those interrogation rooms in Mm -hmm. precinct. So I knew people were observing me. And so anyway, I took these tests again and pretty much scored in a similar fashion. So he was my predicament at that time. People was, there was a whole bunch of activity going around. I wound up being offered uh, an opportunity to go to school in upstate New York. It was kind of like a prep school kind of thing, you know? And uh, some people were gonna, you know, uh, make it possible for me to, you know, leave Brooklyn and go to this school. So with my mindset, developed by my family, the way I looked at it and the way my family looked at it was some white folks trying to put me through some experimental kind of bullshit. 
basically. Mm. Looking back on it now, actually, I know what it was. It was some folks, they happen to be white, but some folks who saw something in me that they thought needed to be nurtured and they were willing to make the opportunity available for me to do that. I didn't see it as that kind of opportunity. I was like, what are they trying to what are they trying to do with me? What are they trying to get from me? Keep in mind right. that, you know, we in, in our community had experienced the Tuskegee experiments and all these other kinds of things. So yeah. when we started talking about conspiratorial feelings, you know, I was like, nobody's going to do anything for me for nothing. You right. know, they got to be trying to get at me. And this mindset, this kind of reality and the conspiracy theories that, that are born from that are the kind of things that, I think really hampered judgment, decision-making and forward movement in many regards. Now I'm not one to look back and say, Oh, if so-and-so had happened and it, I don't believe in that stuff, Danny. I feel like if anything had ever changed about my journey, any step that I wouldn't be sitting in, right here in this space and time with you. So yeah. I don't look back on my past. Like I would wish I could change anything. When I look back, it's like, what, what more can I draw from it? What more can I learn from it? What can I look back on that reaffirms for me where I'm at now? For me, that's what my past is about. Well, you wouldn't be helping the people you're helping right now if you didn't go through the experiences you went through. No, well, this is absolutely true. I mean, so much so that uh, (laughs) I have a daughter who is now 32 years old. And when I went to prison, when I fell, she was 11 months old. So I saw her take her first steps from the county jail in the visiting room in the county jail, okay? And by the time I got out, she was in college. So, so uh, the time that I had with her was actually in penitentiary visiting rooms, you know? Yeah. It took me, it took us uh, about 12 years of me being out here and and being home and being present for us to find a comfortable space to coexist in, you know, to to try to simplify it. I believe that my daughter was angry at someone she never knew and who no longer existed, you know, and I was feeling put upon by those unhealed wounds that she was living with and experiencing. And it just made both of us uncomfortable in the process. But uh, I remember talking to her the first time we actually met up out here in the world. And I remember telling her that I was sorry for everything she may have experienced in my absence, most of which I'd never know, but that I wouldn't change anything if it meant that I would be in a different space right now. I know that's that's probably difficult for her to process as well, but it goes to what I was saying, Danny. You know, I I wouldn't have a, the level of empathy that I think is necessary for human beings to interact on this planet together. I would not have had that. I would not have had the capacity to own my own actions. You know, the first step of the curriculum that we use here in the group that I left to come speak with you, never going back. Is based on the book that I wrote, Never Going Back, Seven Steps to Staying Out of Prison. And the first step is own your own crap. And that's about taking responsibility. For many of our folks, and for me in particular, 
there's a journey to get into there. It's easy to blame people, especially when there's lots of valid issues. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, when you've been legitimately real shit. in your life and by, by, by systems. And I mean, it's easy to say, that ain't my fault. That ain't my problem. That's what, that's what somebody did to me. That's what happened to me, you know, but that's not the avenue to resolution and neither is it the, the course to growth, you know? So we think that's the first, and for me, that didn't come out of some uh, literary visionary space in my head. That was my existence. I spent the first 15 years of my life incarcerated here in Colorado trying to get out of the penitentiary, period. Because I fell on someone else's case, all right? The thing about it is, I took that as a, as a means to be indignant. How dare y'all, you know what I mean? Get me right, you know, that kind of thing, you know? But the fact of the matter is that I had my own footprints in the sand. I had done other things, similar things, worse things, you know what I'm saying? But I chose to focus on, they got me wrong. And for 15 years, all I did was try to get out the penitentiary, including going to Colorado Court of Appeals seven different times, going to federal level appeals three different times. Uh, the last nine of which I was doing my own paperwork, okay? So all it was about was getting out of the penitentiary. And they kept finding new and imaginative ways to smash me. And then one day, brother, and I wrote about it in the, the preface to my book. I wrote about it because I'm Muslim. And there's a part of our prayer. It's kind of informal. It's called dua. But it's really like the supplication where you just kind of get your bag on to God, right? And I remember this day. I had just got shot down once again for the seventh time. And I was at this point in the prayer where I was supposed to be getting my bag on to God, and I couldn't think of nothing to say. It's like 15 years. I was in court every single day. Either I was fighting a case or appealing a case. I had litigation in some court every day for my first 15 years. I'm not exaggerating. Wow. Right? And that day, I came to this understanding and I didn't know what to, what to ask. And I remember hearing myself say, you know what I need. That's, that's all I had left, man. I was out of ideas. I think that also was the day that I gave up on the idea that I knew what the fuck to do with my own life because clearly I didn't. And I also came to the understanding that, yeah, they might've got this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong, but they got the right guy because you were running amok. And you were not going to stop on your own. That day, there was a quantum shift in my thinking, Danny, because I stopped looking outside for why I, my situation was what it was. And I started looking at me to figure this shit out. Because yeah. the bottom line is the only common denominator in every horrific or unfortunate situation in my life, the only common denominator ever was me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and that's the only element that I felt I might have some kind of control over. And that's the focus of our work as well, getting people to look at self first. Can you take us back and paint a picture of what you were like before prison, the feelings you were going through, the, the person you were, what, what your life was like? 
help us understand the transformation you went through? Well, I can tell you like this. On my inmate ID card in Colorado Department of Corrections, I took a piece of tape, covered the word inmate that preceded the number that they gave me, and I wrote POW. Mm. And I had that one form or another on my ID card for about 12 years. And I can't tell you the many times I was instructed to take that off my card or I had it torn off my card, uh, my ID card and replaced it because that's how I saw myself as a prisoner of war. So if you're asking what my life was before that, I felt under siege. I felt under siege in America since I was three years old. That's how I felt, brother. My family used to send me to South Carolina for the summers, most summers. I'll tell you about this one particular. Okay, so I, I go, I'm going down to <laughs> I'm going down to Chiraw, South Carolina, almost every summer. And this one particular summer, I had a few extra dollars and I grabbed a couple of my cousins that we were going to go see these movies. They had Tarzan movie and some other kind of movie. And uh, <clears throat> they used to have something called the crow's nest. The crow's nest was a little balcony that black folks had to use in order to go to a theater, public theater. Now, it was very small, but that was okay because the times that I had been in there, there were only me and my cousins. But uh, we had to go down an alleyway between the theater and the building next to it and hand our money in through a window there in order to get tickets. But also, if we wanted anything from the concession stand, we had to send, slip our money through this lot. We couldn't go in. We couldn't mingle. So we talking, we talking 1963, bruh, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're up in the crow's nest. And throughout the course of the movie, you know, people are shouting up different things and saying different things. And I don't know if I ever saw a Tarzan movie where at some point he didn't have elephants and shit just running over villagers, okay? But, <laughs> uh, you know, I told my cousins, I'm not going to be too many more niggas. This is what I told my cousins. And they and I thought they were kind of scary, and I thought they were kind of soft because they were like, oh, don't say nothing. You know, what I didn't understand is that they were closer to, they were closer to the base of torment uh, that people were experiencing as a result of racist systems and, and racists being in control. I mean, they lived right there in the heart of it. You know, I was from New York. I was from Brooklyn. You know what I mean? I could shake that shit. It wasn't, you know what? You know, I, I'm not having it. And so keeping in mind, we had to go down the alleyway to get up in there. We didn't have no bathroom either. And we couldn't use the bathroom in the theater. So all during this movie, I'm actually, I'm needing to go to the bathroom. I'm needing to take a leak. And I can't do it. If I leave, I can't come back in. And if I leave, what am I going to do? Go around the back of the building and piss outside? That was the only option we had. So when I told my yeah. cousins I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going for any more uh, N-words, they started getting all scary. And, of course, it wasn't but a couple of minutes later when somebody shouted something else up there derogatory with the N-word in there. And I stood up. And I unzipped my pants. And when I did, my cousin was like, what, what are you doing? They, they broke. And what I was doing was I whipped out my little Peter, 
And at eight years old, you got a real powerful stream. And I just went to the edge of the little crow's, crow's nest balcony and I just started letting it loose and just spraying, spraying, spraying. <laughs> and then when I heard, oh shit, they're pissing on us. That's when I cut it off. Cause at eight years old, you can kind of cut that stream off real quick too. <laughs> I cut that shit off. I ran down the stairway out the alley. And by the time I hit the alley, they were rolling out of uh, the theater with, with, with fire in their eyes. But I'm eight years old. I got PF flyers on. I'm from Brooklyn. There ain't no <laughs> catching me. But, um, you know, that was my experience. But, I, but, but the compensation for me and the consolation for me was that these racists went home that day smelling like my piss. <laughs> At an eight, as an eight-year-old, that felt. Yeah. That's who I was prior to going to the penitentiary, brother. I was a black child and a young black man under siege in my own land. And that's how I saw it. That's how I approached it. And to be honest with you, I'm 65 years old, man. And if I allowed myself, I could very easily feel the exact same way. Mm. Like you still have that anger. You still have access to those experiences. Like I would, I could still feel like I was under siege. Mm. Yes. I mean, it makes sense. It's fucked up. Like the level of segregation that exists and like all these experiences you're having to go through. Well, I mean, yeah, it is, <laughs> you know, and uh, I had, I had somebody ask me the other day, because, you know, we were blessed to be able to build a, a permanent supportive housing development here in Aurora, Colorado, a 50-unit apartment building. And uh, we got our certificate of occupancy this past week. We had a temporary certificate of occupancy that allowed us to lease up in February. But we had to meet certain metrics and we had to do some other things in order to get our official certificate of occupancy. So I was waiting for that before I raised the flags on the building. I wanted to raise flags. I had a flagpole up there, but I was waiting for, for us to get that CO, right? I ran three flags up there, Danny. The first one was Colorado State flag that flew over the legislature last year when we uh, were blessed to have nine pieces of criminal justice reform legislation signed into law and blessed to have the governor, Governor Polis, actually come to Second Chance Center to sign those bills into law. Mm. So we had, we had that flag that flew over that, that legislature, 2019. Then second to that, I had Black Lives Matter flag that I ran up there. And underneath that was Second Chance Center's banner. So we got these three flags flying over this building in Aurora, right? And uh, when I came the next day, one of the residents stepped to me, an older white gentleman, uh, someone who had been homeless for about five years here in, in Colorado and had been assaulted many times, uh, four of those times ending up in hospitalization. And he stopped me outside the building and he asked me what was up with the Black Lives Matter flag. And he said, don't all lives matter? What about my old white ass? What about my life? This is what he said to me. And I won't use his name, but I said, look, yeah, definitely your life matters to me. 
I said, but you need to understand when we say Black Lives Matter, we put the emphasis there because when the founders wrote the constitution and they said all men were created equal, they were owning slaves. So they, they weren't considering black lives at that time. Mm-hmm. When they said uh, liberty and justice for all, you got to understand that didn't include black people because black people were still being enslaved at that time. You know, and I said, if we look around right now, you got to admit uh, there are still those who don't, accept the concept of Black Lives Matter. I said, it doesn't say that's the only life that matters, but it's the one we're trying to bring emphasis to. Right. So police could stop shooting us unarmed in the street, stop killing our kids, stop choking us out by, by, by sitting on our, with knees on our necks for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And when I finished talking to him, he, he said that he appreciated me breaking it down. Like He hadn't seen it like that or thought about it like that. And you know what? I'm going to tell you, I think that's one of the things that hampers a lot of progress in this country is the lack of open communication. You know, we're, we're sometimes so entrenched in our own camps and our own beliefs and in our own feelings. You know, everybody who isn't woke doesn't mean that they're like aware, <laughs> you know, that they're making choices, you know, and, and, and when it comes to a lot of the, the folks that we serve who happen to be white, a lot of the supporters of ours who happen to be white, often even yourself perhaps, although I think you're much woke than that, much more woke than that, uh, they don't understand how systemically they've been privileged. And now that's something that, that is the seed of a lot of uncomfortable conversations for people. But just like we talk about white privilege, we have to talk about black and brown and red and yellow disadvantage because mm-hmm. all of that is worked into the system. And when people talk about the system being broken, I correct them quickly. There ain't nothing broken about it. It's operating exactly how it was designed. Yeah. And it was designed as a diabolically effective racist business plan. And we just see it going through several different iterations, you know, from slavery to Jim Crow to redlining to however you want to break it down it's the same thing. The presentation just keeps getting changed to mm-hmm. make it more palatable to the times. It's the same thing. Today, they're starting a series of days of honoring John Lewis. You know, and we, we touched about him the other night too, man. And it was 55 years ago that they split his skull wide open on that bridge in Selma. And I, I can't imagine how he felt at 80 still fighting to keep people's voting rights from being compromised and actually stolen by our own government. Yeah. Uh, 55 years later, I, I can imagine how that man felt, you know, and, and we can't honor him enough and those who, who laid the framework, but it's also a pretty pitiful narrative about America that we're still dealing with the same shit. You know, like Emmett, Emmett Till was murdered the year I was born, Danny. That's crazy. You know. You obviously have made like 4,000 points that I feel like we can just go every which way. And one thing I wanted to just point out is like, you mentioned like white people like falling short often. And I guess that's how I interpret it and perceive it just because 
like for me, like I feel incredibly ignorant to the black experience. I mean, even sitting here listening to your stories, it's just like every time I hear these stories, I'm like, this is fucking crazy. Like I talk to my dad a lot about these things. And my dad comes from inner city Cleveland. He grew up in like a Polish ethnic neighborhood, similar to what you're talking about. And it was poor and there was Italian versus Polish, et cetera. He always says, well, I pulled myself up from that life in the Polish, like, why can't other people do it? And when, like, I just want people to hear your stories and be like, that is completely different than being required to go behind a movie theater to a thing called the crow's nest where there's no bathroom. You can't buy snacks. It's like, it's such a deeper level of oppression and like just systematic abuse that I think these stories need to be continued to be shared and, and listened to. Hi everyone. I want to pause this conversation to tell you a little bit about soul stories and how you can support. Our mission is to host conversations that facilitate personal healing, human connection, and social change. We host a wide variety of online and in-person events, as well as this podcast. Check them out and engage with them at soulstoriesdenver.com or on Facebook and Instagram. This organization is completely volunteer-led, and we are working day in and day out to bring people together fight loneliness, and work towards healing ourselves and society. If you believe in this work, please consider signing up for Patreon or sending a donation to our Soul Stories Venmo account. Both are linked in the description. Thank you for listening. And now back to the episode. I I couldn't agree more, man. And, And here's the thing, that if we're given an opportunity to do that, what I've found and what I believe is that people will come to see more commonality than they do difference. And that's the kind of shit you could work from, you know? Yeah, this whole thing with this coronavirus and this pandemic, the effects of it having people to shut down, I'm hopeful, man. I'm a hope fiend. I was a dope fiend for a bunch of years. <laughs> I'm still a dope fiend. I just don't use. But uh, I, I, I'm actually a hope fiend, man. And I have to look to the possibility of things being better for me to continue with my next day. Okay. And, this is, and, and look, I'm going to tell you, this has been black folks approach to work to, to life forever, you know, uh, uh, by and by, you know, we shall overcome all this was an effort to get through one day and into another guy willing. Okay. We're still doing that kind of thing. But for me, brother, I have to find ways to process things differently. It's, it's one of the things that we teach here at Second Chance Center. Like for instance, right now, my glasses are a, a jam, brother. Usually I go through this experience and my wife would say to me, son, give me those glasses. Unbeknownst to me, there was like a, a thumbprint or some donut. I do the same shit, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And everything looked fine to me because, you know, I'm used to it. But then when I clear it up, like right now, you're looking like HD to me right now. (laughs) Well, I believe that our eyes are the same way. They're the windows to our soul. They're they're all these things. But if we're processing new information through old filters, literally or otherwise, 
things tend to look the same, sound the same. We tend to feel the same way about them. We tend to respond to them in similar ways. So part of our work is getting our folks to understand that, to recognize that, to clear up those lenses, to change those lenses so we learn how to process information differently. And I'm saying about the people that I work with, but I mean generally, people need to do that. Generally, whether yeah. you've been to the penitentiary or not, whether yeah. you live the Everybody. life of or not, yes, definitely. And you know what? I was doing this thing once for a friend of mine who had a fundraiser for their organization. And man, this fundraiser took place on the 19th floor of a building here in Denver, looking over a park, Cheeseman Park. Now, Cheeseman Park at night, it might not be a beautiful setting, but Cheeseman Park at dusk from the 19th floor in Denver, Colorado was a beautiful thing, man. Mm -hmm. And there was about a hundred feet of floor to ceiling windows. So the vista, the view was like an incredible thing for me in particular, because I'd never been in that space before. But I'm looking out at this crowd, you know, some well-to-do folks, you know, pretty well healed, you know, some, some, some ladies with beautifully coughed blue hair, that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> I said to them, I said, you know, uh, some of you I've had the pleasure to meet before and some of you I, I have yet to meet. I said, I'm looking at all these beautiful faces in this audience. And I gotta be honest with you. It was a time in my life when I'd look at you all and I'd be like, that's a trick, that's a sucker, that's a mark, that's a, you know, and some of these older women were like, oh my goodness, you know. What, <laughs> what and then I explained to them what we just talked about. I said, you know, I'm seeing people now in my life, Danny, that's the same people, but I'm looking at them through some different lenses. And what I've found over the course of the almost 15 years that I've been home is that I met some really incredible folks, man, mm -hmm. from all walks of life, from all ethnic backgrounds, from all uh, 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 social statures, from, all all uh sexual persuasions and identities all i mean that at one time i would have been processing quite different than i do now as a result of being blessed to actually find the ability to do that i've got to see people for more than the surface of them and have met some pretty incredible folks and got to learn a lot of things that i just assumed were different about their lives and as a result, I think many of them may have had their perceptions expanded just by their interaction with me. I think that's the secondary responsibility of us as Second Chance Center who've been given a chance to get, get our lives back out here in the world and on track. You know, we got to help the larger community have a clearer picture, not just about who the population we serve are, but the issues that come into play. And one of the things when we start talking about commonalities, brother, I never was a public speaker or anything like that. I learned how to speak to people I didn't know, working a, a fundraising cart selling turkey legs <laughs> and hamburgers for the, uh, the therapeutic community program I was released to. Mm. And having conversations with people, and what I found was there wasn't one person that I ever met that didn't have somebody in their family that was impacted by mental health issues, substance use disorders, trauma of some sort. Okay, uh -huh. these are the common threads. Yeah. And so that's part of our work too, getting people to kind of see that our folks aren't as different 
as they appear just on the surface. And I know that might sound like kind of Pollyannaish or some hallmark shit. I don't know. <laughs> but, but no, it's good, man. That when we actually can talk, that there's a chance for understanding to be shared. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where humanity is seen and empathy is nurtured. Just to go off that, my, my mom uh, overdosed on narcotics, took 72 tramadol pills, and luckily is alive. But yeah, mental health, substance abuse, it's big in my life too. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anybody who hasn't been touched by that. And I'm going to tell you, some of the most idyllic family portraits sitting on uh, uh, mantles on fa- fabulous stone fireplaces in some of the best homes in America shield some of the most horrific kinds of uh, sexual and, and emotional and physical abuses that anybody could ever think of, man. Right. And unfortunately, when these kind of things happen in the families of those who are privileged with either white skin in America or some other kind of social status, they can hide these things more easily. Mm-hmm. And that's the unfortunate thing because those same people who are damaged like that They don't wind up like my people in the penitentiary damaged and having been turned from victim to perpetrator to to incarcerated individual. No, these are people that become police officers and teachers and psychologists, judges, presidents. You know, that's Uh the most fortunate part about it when that kind of shit can be hidden behind the veneers of acceptability and appropriateness and, actually white privilege brother yeah and something i find too is in that like veneer people are trying to save themselves by doing everything outside of themselves being in these high status positions trying to be psychologists when they're fucked up themselves and have never taken the chance to look at their own life and yeah well here's the proof if you want to look at the highest rates of suicide per profession if i'm not mistaken it's still psychiatrists. It's psychiatrists. It's police officers. And it was correction officers after that. The last time I looked, I could be wrong now. Somebody hurry up and fact check me. But, you know, I find that pretty ironic. Right. That those are the professions with the highest levels of suicide. So, yeah, we got people that are being damaged on a regular. And they consider themselves, and perhaps they are, patriots. I mean, every day... 22 people who served the military for this country are committing suicide. Yeah. And they're committing suicide, not because, uh, what they're committing suicide in many regards, because they have damages that aren't being addressed appropriately. And they've been damaged by a system that they supported by putting their lives at risk. That's the irony of it. And they're dying under bridges and they're dying in abandoned buildings and they're dying homeless when they served. That's crazy. This is America we're talking about. And America will eat its own. And I'm I'm saying that look, this is my country, man. I love this bad boy, but I got relatives I love too that ain't shit. You know what I mean? That needs some work. <laughs> you know, I got people that love me when I really didn't amount to a whole lot on the surface or even deeper than that. So I'm not willing to give up on this country, but I'm not willing to turn a blind eye to what she is or what she's done. And a lot of the efforts that are happening right now 
are just efforts to get people to open up their eyes, man, and clean up the lenses and process this stuff differently. Maybe for the first time, forget about feeling guilty about some shit. Let's try to get right. Right. Try to get right. For me, brother, my life is this. I don't have time to feel guilty about the kind of things I've done to people over the course of the earliest parts of my life. You know, I've processed that. I've gone through that. I've felt all of those things. You know, right now, I have to be motivated by the fact that I survived those things. I was blessed to endure and to get another opportunity, a second chance, if I will. And I was just telling folks that were on our mentoring call before I jumped off to get with you, Danny. I told them, we owe. I feel like that. Those of us who have perpetrated crimes against people and gone to the penitentiary and been blessed to come back, we owe. We owe a debt. And, and we need to feel like that. Well, let me just tell you, America owes a debt as well. Yeah. And, 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 and when I hear people say that was 200 years ago, well, Mitch McConnell, Moscow Mitch, I just heard him this morning saying, you know, uh, nobody alive today was responsible. No, yeah, nobody alive today uh, was responsible for enslaving anybody back. Yeah, but you're still living off the resources that were generated by that business and by those actions. And people just need to honestly accept that position and that reality because that's what it is. Yeah. I think the fear in people recognizing it is like white people will think that their efforts were for naught and they're like, they're not fully responsible for their lives. And there's just so much fear I see in people not willing to, as you said, own your crap. And the generational trauma that comes from just having past families who have like abused and oppressed people for years and generations. And I don't know, I'm, I'm having a hard time collecting my thoughts, but. I hate, no, don't worry about it, brother. You know, you know what that means? That means that you're thinking, you know, yeah. and we all need to do more of that. Here's this thing that I, I started to mention and I skipped. This whole pandemic, uh, this pandemic, I think, I'm hopeful that there will be a benefit from it, uh, even if it's just this, that people are experiencing isolation, separation, uh, fear of loss, lack of uh, uncertainty. People are feeling those kind of things across the country. Mm-hmm. Man, that's how black folks live. That's been our lives forever. And those of us who have been unfortunate enough and sometimes fortunate enough to go to the penitentiary and come back out here, you know, uh, people are getting shared experiences right now. When they talk about COVID lockdown, I laugh. That's lockdown. (laughs) You know, my folks, we really understand what that is. But generally speaking, Americans are, are uncomfortable when they're challenged, when their needs are being actually met the the biggest segment of our population don't understand about not not having or worrying about where the next one is coming from the next right. meet you know the threat of of homelessness on the horizon man we have tens of millions of people unless the congress gets off off of whatever they're on in the senate and pass some bills to actually help decisionary here in the country, we got tens of millions of people who will be facing homelessness for the first times in their life for no fault of their own. Right. 
And that's something black folks know a lot about too, you know, dealing with, with difficulty and challenges for no fault of our own. We just haven't been born in this space and in these skins. And, and people need to, as uncomfortable as that might make folks feel, you need to take a look at that. Yeah. I'm curious if you could kind of talk about your own moment when you were able to clear your lenses. You touched on it a little bit when you were in prison, and I'm not sure if that was the moment or if there was moments after, but what led you to being able to have this kind of hope for the future and like commitment to change and growth? Man, that's a, that's a good question. And, and I've had a lot of people in my life uh, that have really been impactful. And I, I don't want to minimize the gifts anybody has offered me, whether they know it or not. But I, I'll tell you about one instance that changed, changed me uh, very significantly. I spent the last 16 months of my incarceration in a program called Crossroads to Freedom, which was a therapeutic community program in one of the facilities here in Colorado, Arrowhead. There were two different programs at this facility and we were separated from general population. We, as part of the, the, the culture of the program, we couldn't associate with general population. We can only associate with ourselves. The benefit of that was one, it was the first time in 16 years of incarceration that I was ever in a, an environment that was safe enough for me where I didn't have to look, I didn't have to watch my back. So I had an opportunity to look at myself. That was the setting, at least that's how I processed it. There was another program, this was a drug and alcohol program that I was in. There was another program for sex offenders. And at one point, the director of the program, her name was Tanya Garcia, who I love, love, love dearly to this day. But for the first six months of our relationship, uh, I thought she hated me. And I was sure that I hated her because she challenged me on everything. She challenged me at every step. And uh, what I came to realize is that she was doing battle with me for me. She wasn't trying to humiliate me. She was trying to break down those images of self that I had erected basically as a survival mechanism, but she wasn't accepting any of that shit. So anyway, she called us together uh, one day because there had been some incidences between the drug and, and alcohol treatment program participants and the sex offender program. And she was calling on us to improve our relationships with that program and to work with those folks and this and that and this and that. Okay, so uh, people had some comments to make and she was dealing with them on a regular. I wasn't saying anything because it wasn't safe for me to speak because one rule, the number one rule in this program was no violence, no threats of violence. You do anything similar to that, you can send right back to the penitentiary you came from. So I was sitting there not saying anything, which was unusual for me in groups because I'm not a silent individual if I have something to say. And I had my head down and she obviously saw me. So she said, so Hassan, it's a beautiful little Puerto Rican lady. She said, so Hassan, what do you think? And I looked up at her, right? <laughs> and she was staring right in my eyes. And you know how they say 
like you don't stare at dogs. They start growling. They get, they feel, you know, set upon. That's how I felt. She was staring at me, daring me to, to say what I was thinking. And I took the dare. And I said, they're lucky I'm not murdering them every day. And when I said that, everybody started chiming in because this was a peer-driven kind of program. Everybody started saying stuff to me and I started shutting them down one at a time to it was just me and her. And we were back and forth, back and forth. She said to me, Hassan, you're a murderer. How dare you, you know, uh, alluding to a case from my childhood when uh, someone lost their life as a result of my actions when I was defending my own life. But she threw that in there. And she said, how dare you judge anybody and blah, blah, blah. And I took the Bob Marley defense approach, which is, yeah, I shot the sheriff, but I did not shoot the deputy. <laughs> I mean, that's it. <laughs> so I was telling her all these things that really reflected my code. You know, I never harmed the elderly. I never harmed the woman. I never harmed the child. I was doing back and forth, back and forth, and we were going at it. And then all of a sudden I said to her, look, Tanya, you got nieces, you got nephews. You looking for a babysitter. Who are you going to hire, me or one of them? And she said, I'd hire you, Hassan. And I said, okay. And I threw my hands up in the air like I had won. And that's when she fucked me up. She let me win that battle. Ultimately, she won the war because she said to me, didn't you sell drugs at one time? I said, yeah. She said, well, suppose someone under the influence of those drugs did this horrific thing. Now, I know people could rationalize that and say, well, I ain't forcing somebody to use, or it ain't my, you know, I didn't make them. You know what I mean? That's what people do. Mm. We, if we want, we'll find a way to rationalize whatever we do. I mean, right. they rationalize enslaving human beings, mm -hmm. okay, in America for however many centuries, okay? But she fucked me up with that. Because at that moment, I was still good with everything I had ever done in my life to anybody for any reason. Because in my mind, either you made me do that, I had to do that, it was justified for me to do that, or I didn't care. That don't matter to me. It, was, it, it all fell into those kind of categories. When she hit me up like that, man, it fucked me up because... I could no longer feel like that because I did not know what I was responsible for putting in the world. I could not really claim that I knew what I was responsible for doing, what my hands had wrought. And I couldn't live with that, man. Because it took like, me four days. It took me four days. My, my brother, I'm telling you, she fucked me up for four days. I, I, I had to reprocess everything about my thinking. And what I came up with at the end of those four days was that from that point on, I pledged and I vowed that as much as it was humanly possible, I would know what I was responsible for. And operating in that space meant that 
certain kinds of changes were going to be required about how I walked through my life. And I had to learn how to do it because I didn't know how to do it. And I was going to have to see people and circumstances from a different vantage point in order to make those kinds of changes. And I'm going to be honest with you, man. I, I've come a long way, but I, I, I haven't arrived, brother. Mm-hmm. I'm in recovery, but I ain't recovered, if that makes any sense. And here's this thing about Tanya Garcia. By the time I left, which was January 4th, 2006, and ironically, the day we broke ground on our apartment building, after being delayed about five months by different challenges in the city, uh, it wound up being the 13th anniversary of the day I walked out of prison. But that day, I remember it clearly, man. My wife had sent me the first pair of Tims I ever owned. I was wearing dress clothes for the first time in, in almost 18 years. And I was standing out in sleet and, and, and rain and cold. And I was waiting to see Tanya. And for some reason, she was late coming to work. And I found myself after... 15 straight years of being in court every single day trying to get out of the penitentiary. And the last uh, couple trying to figure out what I needed to do to stay out if I ever got out, I found myself praying that the bus that was coming to get me was late so that I get a chance to see Tanya. Mm -hmm. And finally she comes in and she's mobbing like she usually does at at four foot 10 or however tall she was. And so I'm trying to thank her, man, because as soon as some lights started coming on during this process in my time with her, and she saw that I was connecting dots, her whole approach to me changed. Instead of busting me in the head about everything, she embraced me in a new kind of way. And so at this point, I was in love with her, and I was ingratiated to her, and, and I felt as though I had a chance. Like when I left out of this place, I really had a chance of of succeeding out there. I didn't know what that meant or how it would look, but I felt better prepared. I felt prepared for it and I wanted to thank her and I could not formulate a coherent sentence. You know, I mean, I was crying, dude. And I don't mean like tears out my eyes. I'm talking bubbles out the nose kind of crying. I mean, it was horrible, man. (laughs) And, And she took pity on me and she reached up and tapped me on the shoulder as she walked away. And she said, just be kind to people. Like if I wanted to pay her back, that's all I had to do. And that wasn't a frame of reference for me, brother, but I, I think about that every day. I started putting that into practice by just using a name on people's name tag at 7-Eleven or, 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 or King Super, okay? Using people's names. And, 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 and what I found out is that people started being kind to me for like no reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It, was like, it was like that was the connect. I hear that every day. I hear her saying that to me every day. And some days it's more difficult than others to just be kind to people. Mm-hmm. Some days it's more challenging because I deal with all kinds of people, brother. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, I have to really dig deep to, uh, in order to, to try to live up to that standard. But uh, I try every day, man. And the days that I fall short, I, 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 I feel some kind of way about that. And I recommit to, to doing better and being better. That's kind of how I'm living right now. 
Well, it's amazing how the way I see it is Tanya like found the one small hole in your armor and somehow hit that. How did you maintain that level of like commitment to change? I've seen people like break down, but how do you not go back to like putting that armor back on? Yeah, that's a good question, but I'm going to tell you, you know, uh, when I wrote that book and entitled it never going back, you know, I got NGB plates on my car and it's not vanity plates. That's, that's a mission statement, man. That's a, that's a life commitment. Never going back. And I don't just mean never going back to prison. You know, I, I'm trying never to go back to my old ways of thinking or feeling or processing or treating other people. You know, it, it's that level of commitment. And it's something that has to be renewed, man. It has to be renewed on a regular because, but I, I'll tell you to ask your question, what keeps me on that track is the acknowledgement of what works, you know? And even though there's difficulties and challenges in my life still, you know, I have a peace that I never had before and I value that. And I've come to value myself in a way where if people don't have a sense of their own value, their own self-worth, it's kind of difficult or unreasonable to expect them to value somebody else's life or somebody else's property or somebody else's worth. So much of what's wrong starts with self. And so much about getting it right starts with self as well. And, and I remind myself of that. Let me, since this is a storytelling thing, I'm going to tell you this. My wife says it's disgusting, but I tell people uh, because I think it's also, <laughs> it's also instructive. But, uh, and I was in the penitentiary in uh, uh, Centennial, which was kind of like the maximum facility in Colorado before they built CSP. And we, we were, uh, regularly, we found ourselves on one, one kind of lockdown or another. So lockdown, for those who don't know, when you're in the penitentiary, it means just that. Your cell door stays locked uh, 23 hours a day or more. You're fed in your cell. If you're allowed to come out, it's every couple of days to take a shower, and you might have five minutes to do that. That kind of, that kind of setting, all right? So I'm, I'm, I'm in lockdown this particular year, and I had a pair of tweezers in my possession. I don't know where, I, where they came from, but they were pretty good. So they were industrial. They probably were stolen from the medical department or some shit. So I'm sitting there on my bunk looking at my bare feet, and I started getting this idea about trying to get myself a pedicure, work on my cuticles. I've never had a pedicure. I didn't know what I was doing. And I started digging around in my big toe and uh, with these tweezers. And, and, and what I started doing was digging in one corner one corner of the back of the toe nail, right? And at first it was a little painful, you know, I'm, I'm digging between the cuticle and the nail and, you know, it was a little bit of pain, it was a little bit of blood. But after a while, I kind of got numb to that because I'm thinking about stuff while I'm doing this. And I wasn't really acknowledging the damage that I was doing and I wasn't really feeling the pain, you know, it's just, I got used to it. And I looked down at some point and the, 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 the toenail, I had, pulled enough of it up where it was curled, Danny. Ooh. And I thought to myself, damn, these are some good-ass tweezers. I bet you I could snatch this whole toenail off, right? Now, <laughs> while I'm thinking about this, I'm also thinking, that, that ain't really a great idea. <laughs> that shit's probably going to really hurt. But it didn't stop me, man. I, I grabbed the curled-up end of it, 
and I just snatched. And as you can imagine, brother, it was it, it was more than I could have imagined. It was like ah, ugh. you know. So uh, I did this thing. When we came off lockdown a couple of days later, my wife came down to visit, and she usually came every single weekend. She came and visited about seven hundred times during the course of my incarceration. On the wow. Weekend. Anyway, when I limped into the visiting room, immediately she must have thought, you know, I had got in some kind of thing, you know, and she <laughs> wanted to know what happened, what, you know, you know, how am I hurt, what, well, you know, and so when I told her what I did, she looked at me and she was like, why would you do something like that? And my, my retort was, because it felt so good when I stopped, right? Wow. Kind of sound a little jazzy. But here it was, six months later, I thought that the toe would kind of grow back all the form, the nail, right? I had visions in my mind of the Wizard of Oz when the house fell on the witch and her foot curled all up. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. And I thought that my toe would come back pretty deformed and looking pretty horrible. But actually, here it was six months later, it looked pretty much the same. And I was sitting there. And I still had those tweezers. I don't know how they passed all kinds of searches. And I was looking at it. And yeah, I did that shit again. So when I share this story. You with took my the phone, toenail off again? Yeah. And so it sounds crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so when I share this with my folks, the part that I want to emphasize is the first time I, I knew that it really wasn't a great idea. I knew that it was going to be some pain involved. I didn't really know how much, you know, but the second time I did it, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew exactly how painful it was going to be, how long it would take my toe to heal and the nail to grow back. I knew exactly what I was doing and I did it again. And when I shared it with my folks and they're thinking just like you, that's some crazy shit. Why would you do that? And I say to them, that's the same thing your people are asking. Why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep going back to the penitentiary? Why do you keep relapsing? Why do you, they're saying the same thing. You know how much that hurts. Why would you do that? And this is the kind of awareness that I'm trying to generate in our folks, because we got to figure that shit out. Mm -hmm. What I also found was that what I said to my wife, trying to be jazzy and slick, was really the truth that it feels so good when you stop, when you stop harming yourself, when you stop doing self-destructive kind of things, when you stop feeling into, feeding into those things that have always served you ill. It really does feel good. So when you ask, how do I keep going, brother? Because it feels good now that I've stopped doing that other thing. Mm. It feels good. And even challenges and difficulties, they don't feel overwhelming. They're not seen in the same light by me, and I don't approach them the same, and it works. So I go, I'm going to keep working what works, brother. Mm -hmm. All right, before we do the final closing comments, I don't know if uh, this will be on the podcast, but are you a hip-hop fan? Yeah, I am, actually. Oh, man. I would love to even sit down with you again. I know it's probably unrealistic, and because you're from the Mecca. Yeah, well, you know, it's a funny thing. My wife Imani, uh, she's 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 pretty amazing in a number of different ways. Uh, <laughs> she uh, 
<laughs> she told me that when I went to prison, I was DMX. And when I came out, I was the young MC. So, <laughs> <go> figure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Hey, look, I'm, I'm open to talking to you again in the future, Danny. I, I've enjoyed this so far. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. A Tribe Called Quest. I just, they're like, yeah. Anyways. Um, I, was, I was raised, uh, when I left Brooklyn, I was raised in, in Jamaica, Queens. Jamaica, Queens was the home of, of uh, Run DMC. It was the home of Salt and Pepper. It was the home of uh, 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 a bunch of folks, man. So, yeah, yeah we'll talk about that, that kind of thing at a, uh, another time, all right? All right, yeah, I, I look forward to it. Um, I actually became a hip-hop head as an older person, you know, so go figure. <laughs> yeah, did, did you... I, I guess the last question, were you in Brooklyn, like in the seventies, late seventies, eighties, when it started to come up or were you out of Brooklyn at that time? Uh, actually I was, I was in Queens. My, my wife though was raised in the Bronx in Southview projects and okay. really the home, the birth, the birth of hip hop. Uh, if you want to, if you want to attach a birthplace to it. Uh, so I came up in that space. Damn. Okay. All right. I'm like, I gotta, you know, I gotta have some self-control here. All right. So, uh, <laughs> what would you like to say for your like closing statements on this conversation? Maybe advice, perspective, or just, you know, shouting out second chance center and some things you guys are doing. Well, you know, just, just briefly about second chance center for those who don't know, we're a reentry organization. We're dedicated to helping formerly incarcerated persons transition to lives of success and fulfillment. And we say that in our mission statement because we think that success and fulfillment are two very different things. I mean, you could check off boxes for someone getting an apartment, someone getting a job, someone. I mean, all of those things are, are successes. But I've seen people go back to prison with those boxes checked. And my belief is because there's still some emptiness, some fulfillment that hasn't been reached. And that's part of our work is getting people to try to address that part of self. We're here doing that. We're committed to doing that. We're a staff of 26, and 13 of us have been there, done that. We continue to reinvigorate our efforts, and we do that as a result of the community coming to support us in so many ways. People who have never had these personal experiences, even people whose family members have, have escaped that kind of, uh, those kind of conditions or those kind of experiences. So uh, that's what we're doing. That's what we continue to do. And generally, if I, if I could share anything, it's what I share with our folks. The thought that life can really, really be different. Uh, we just have to commit to approaching it differently. And a lot of it has to do with the things we've been talking about, Danny. You know, self-awareness, owning our own part in, in the process, being open to instruction and guidance wherever it's coming from, being brave enough or courageous enough or open enough or transparent enough to dig through the kind of stuff that we just been carrying and don't need to continue. The, the second step of the seven steps is baggage dumping, like getting rid of the shit we don't need to carry with us anymore. And that ain't just people coming out of the penitentiary. That's all of us, brother. All of us have experiences and things that we continue to carry and that continue to impact the way we feel and how we think and how we behave ultimately that aren't necessary anymore. Like there are skill sets and things that I have had 
that I don't need to utilize anymore. And to continue to lug those things around just would make the pace of my journey more labored. And so if I could just put anything out there, you're talking to a man who could literally still be buried in the penitentiary. And yet I'm find myself blessed to be in a position where I can maybe leave a mark as opposed to just scars. And it's something that I recommit to every day. Well, I appreciate you, Hassan. Thanks for talking. Thanks for sharing your experiences, your stories. You got a, a lot to offer this world. And I'm grateful that I got to just be here and participate in this and witness it. Hey, well, thanks for what you're doing as well, brother. Anybody interested in connecting with us, they can go to www.sccolorado.org. That's our website. And you can go there and find out what we're doing. And uh, if you need help for a loved one or a family member and we can be of assistance, please don't hesitate to reach out. If we're an entity you think is worthy of support, please feel free to do that. If you have some skill set or some passion that you'd like to uh, offer us in, in, in our effort to do this work, uh, we welcome that as well. And uh, yeah, so hit us up, check us out, come visit us when you can. When this COVID thing lets up, we're going to be uh, doing some things publicly that I hope people feel drawn to. And you as well, Danny, we ain't, we ain't going to just drop off this relationship we've developed. And I don't know if you feel like that about it. But if I'm sitting talking to you for 90 minutes, brother, about my life, <laughs> we got a relationship. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so understand that. And shoot me your cell phone number, if you will, brother, in the email so I can hit you up from time to time, okay? Find Absolutely. out what you do well. All yeah. right? I'd love to All keep right. supporting you. Thank you, brother. Mad respect. Thanks All so right. much. All right. I'll see you around. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to the Soul Stories podcast. These conversations are absolutely one of my favorite parts of working within Soul Stories. I hope you leave feeling inspired and energized. If you like what you heard, please leave a rating and or a review wherever you get podcasts. It really helps amplify the show and most importantly, the voices of our guests. Thanks and see you next time. This is Danny signing off.